The newly minted St. John Henry Newman once wrote, Hard as it is to believe, miracles certainly do not make men better. The history of Israel proves it. And he's, of course, referring to the fact that as Moses was leading Israel through the desert, um, when he was on top of Mount Sinai, they became fearful and started worshiping a golden calf. Uh, when they were being fed with heavenly food, the manna, they grumbled against God and even offered, sorry, they even requested to be sent back to Egypt, back into slavery. So although they had seen miracles, uh, they did not respond in faith. And so the fact that St. John Henry Newman said this, it's, uh, there's a bit of irony when we uh, consider what led to his canonization. So recently there was a Chicago woman who had uh, complications in her pregnancy. And one morning after she sat the children, her children down for breakfast, she went up to her bedroom and collapsed in the bathroom because she was bleeding out. And as she was fearing that these moments would be her last, she made a simple, humble prayer to Cardinal John Henry Newman, simply saying, Cardinal Newman, please make the bleeding stop. And it did, immediately. And she attests that there was a perfume of roses that filled the room. And even miraculously, when she went back downstairs, her children had stayed at the table as she had requested. (laughs) And so this, well, it was this morning in Rome, they're five hours ahead of us. She was at the canonization mass giving thanks. And it's that response uh, to miracles that we see in our readings today. We're greeted with Naaman, a foreigner, in the Old Testament reading, and then we also learn about this Samaritan uh, who fell at the feet of Jesus. And there's a parallel happening here. The church in her wisdom has put these two uh, scriptural accounts before us for our meditation and contemplation. Both of these men were plagued with leprosy and both responded to their miraculous healing with gratitude. And so this parallel teaches us today about sin, about faith, and about grace. So it teaches us about sin because leprosy is the embodiment of sin in Scripture. So as an author, we'll often use um, signs to represent realities, making use of metaphors or similes. God, as a divine author, uses typology, which means he uses realities to signify other realities. And so this visible reality of leprosy points to the interior reality, the invisible reality of sin. And the effects correspond So Naaman and the Samaritan suffered these effects. Their exterior beauty was marred. Leprosy cut them off from the rest of the people. They were unclean and had to stay off in the distance, ringing bells, saying, unclean, unclean. And thirdly, they were ritually impure. 
They, they lacked the proper capacity to give worship to God in the temple. This is why Jesus in the gospel tells the lepers to go to the priests, because it was only in the Old Testament, it was only in, according to that law, that um, one could be deemed healed from leprosy and fit to give worship in the temple. The priests acted as a judge, whether or not one had the capacity to worship. So in this healing of leprosy, um, exterior beauty is restored. Uh, Naaman and the Samaritan are allowed to have communion once again with their fellow men. And they're able to worship the one true God. So the healing of leprosy points to the healing of sin in the soul. Just as leprosy affects the exterior beauty of a man, sin mars the beauty of the soul. And just as leprosy cuts men off from one another and prevents them from worshiping, sin does the same. It removes us from the communion of charity within the church, and it makes our worship dead. We can have a dead faith as it's resulting from sin. So the ordinary way that you and I are healed of our leprosy, our spiritual leprosy, is by means of the sacraments. We don't need a miracle. Christ has instituted the sacraments, these visible signs, um, which we believe in faith will affect grace within our souls, restore the beauty of our soul. Join us back together with the church in a communion of love and give us the capacity to praise, adore, and thank God. And so in pointing to the sacraments, this is how the readings begin to point to our faith. So Naaman had had to wash in the Jordan River seven times to be healed of his leprosy. And the church fathers talk about this number seven as a clear indication that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are being foreshadowed here. We receive these gifts in baptism, and then there's a further strengthening and perfecting of them at confirmation. And the fact that Naaman immersed himself in the Jordan River is a clear evocation of Christ's own immersion, his baptism in the Jordan River as well. This is where Christ instituted the sacrament of baptism, that sacrament that gives us eternal life and washes away the original sin. And in similar fashion, the Samaritan was commanded to show himself to the priests, presumably in Jerusalem, yet he doesn't go to that priest. He returns to Jesus Christ, the high priest, and falls down at his feet in thanksgiving. And he hears those wonderful words, your faith has saved you. When Christ instituted the priesthood, he was washing the feet of the disciples. And he's given to the church the power to forgive sins. So when you and I go and kneel in the confessional and confess our sins and hear those words from Father, 
I absolve you. It's Christ himself who's acting through his priests to cure us, to heal us, to give us charity, to restore the beauty of our souls, and to make us fit for worship. So miracles are great, but the sacraments are greater, for it's in the sacraments that our faith becomes actualized. It's not just sitting as a potential habit within our souls. It actually comes forth into reality, bearing fruit. And through them, we receive the greatest gift that God can give, which is his own love. We participate in his life. And this this is what grace is. Grace is the receiving of a gift that we can't make repayment on. And so this is the, the, the great detail in the account of Naaman, because he, he tried to make repayment. He pleaded with Elisha that he would be able to give something to him, to him in thanksgiving, because he was this, he was a, a um, if you read the account in the second book of Acts, I mean, sorry, the second book of Kings, uh, he was a general. He was a very powerful, influential, successful man. And he wanted to give all of his goods as a way of making repayment for something that was divine. And this is why Elisha says, no, that's not what's being asked of you. And so the proper response he makes is he has this bizarre request to take two mule loads of soil with him and promises that he would offer no holocaust, no sacrifice to any other god but the one true God of Israel, the God who saved him. He wants this foreigner, he's outside the covenant of Israel, he wants to worship God. He wants to give thanks. And it's a similar um, story with the Samaritan. I mean, he returns in, in humility, just falls at the feet of Jesus in thanksgiving. He's, in a, in a sense, giving nothing but acknowledging the gift he's received. You know, Aristotle said that a gift is an unreturnable giving. So for it to be a true gift, the giver has to expect nothing in return. And in a sense, the one receiving the gift has to suffer the situation where he can't make return. And that's you and I when we receive the gift of the sacraments, especially in the Eucharist. You know, the Eucharist, the word itself means thanksgiving. And it's in the most blessed sacrament, which we're about to receive, where God gives the unreturnable giving of himself, a gift that far surpasses the splendor of the healing of skin, the miraculous perfume of roses, and even the salvation of our own mortal bodies. This, this Chicago woman, we give thanks for her faith and in receiving this miracle and giving to the church a saint. But she's going to have to pass away. 
But the faith we hope that endures in her and endures in us leads to eternal life. And this is what we're meant to give thanks for, is this gift of life which Christ gives to us. And so just in closing, I want to just read a few lines from Psalm 116 for your prayer and meditation before this Eucharist. It reads, How can I repay the Lord for all the great good done for me? I will raise the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will offer to you a thanksgiving sacrifice and call on the name of the Lord.